So last week, uh, we, we, we started out looking at uh, uh, what Paul told Titus to teach and sound doctrine to different groups in the church. All right, we're gonna, we were going to try to hit older men, uh, Gary referred to that here in his communion uh, talk, older men and younger men, but we never got to the younger guys. And so we're just going to keep going now and, uh, and, and talk to the younger men. But a few people mentioned to me, you know, a, a after last week's lesson about, look, all this kind of does apply to all of us, you know. And that's true. You know, don't sit back and think, oh, well, let's see, I'm not an older man. I'm not a younger man. I'm not even a man. I can just, <laughs> you know, I can zone out again or whatever. No, no, all of this really does because... The application for everybody, because it's, it's kind of like, remember in chapter 1 when we looked at all the different qualities you look for in an elder? And we said, you know, we don't get to really say, I'm not an elder, not going to be an elder, so I guess I don't have to worry about that. No, these are all qualities of a mature disciple that everybody ought to be aspiring to and working towards. And we talked about the whole overall message that Paul's trying to get across to us in Titus, trying to get through Titus is, make the message about our God more attractive and be and live such a life that people have nothing bad to say about us. So whatever is attractive to the older man's character or the younger man's character or the older woman's character would be attractive in any disciple. It would apply to all of us. Now certainly a handful of them are gender specific, but basically everything we're going to talk about today is not gender specific. It can apply to all of us. So as we turn our attention to younger men, everybody, let's say, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's, that sounds biblical, doesn't it? Right. All right, so Titus really only gives one sentence to the young guys. Nice. Okay, nice, right. You're figuring this ought to be easy. Uh, it starts in verse 6. He says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And going on, though, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, remember I mentioned last week, Paul directs Titus to be an example. But that implies that somebody should be following that example. The things he's saying, Titus, you need to be an example in, are the same things that say, well, then that's what I need to do. I need to, if I need to follow that example, I need to be that too. So really, it is something for all of us, even though he just said, you know, young men be self-controlled, but then, but be an example to them in these areas. So we all need to look at all of these areas. Now, he starts out by saying similarly or likewise, depending upon your uh, translation. What that word does is ties everything he's about to say with everything he just said. He pulls them all together. So everything he has already said to the older men and the older women and the younger women, he's now saying to the younger men, but he's saying similarly, likewise, basically all of this ties together under the umbrella of being self-controlled. And that's what I'm going to talk about here for just a moment. That phrase, self-controlled. This is the third time Paul's going to use this phrase. He's going to use it four times in this chapter. And this is the third time. This is something that it's just a recurring theme all through self-control, self-control, which comes from godly thinking. The word, and some translations don't say self-control, they say sensible. 
It's actually made up of two Greek words, which means healthy thinking or healthy mind. And he puts them together. He says healthy thinking or godly thinking. It's thinking like God. Thinking healthy. Young men, but actually every one of us, right, are called to curb our passions, our temptations, our desires through godly thinking. Healthy thinking, self-control. Now, there are many passions associated with youth, right? I mean, there's, of course, there's ambition, and, you know, you're just getting started, and you're, you're, you're wanting to go out and all of that sort of things. And there's, of course, all the, the physical passions that go with, with life. Paul is saying young men must exercise self-control, rein in these passions by keeping a godly perspective on your life. Right thinking leads to right actions. And this is kind of a hard thing. Usually it's an older person who by simple nature of the fact of being knocked down so many times develops a godly perspective on life. They learn more about life because they've just been beat up by it more. He's trying to say, but the older guy, but you know, younger people, we need to have this right perspective, this self-control, this right thinking. Now, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, that one of the fruits of being led by the Holy Spirit is self-control. All right, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You can see them, they're going around the corner. All right, what is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then the cherries over there, cherry on top, self-control. The thing about self-control is, is the entire struggle for self-control is inward. All right? The results of that struggle are all outward. But the, all the struggle is in inward. But if self-control is, is, and I was thinking about this, if self-control is me acting on me, then why is it listed as a fruit of the Spirit? I mean, isn't it, by definition, self-generated? Right? Something I'm supposed to do on my own. Right? I mean, the first word of self-control is Self, right. But after all, I mean, as Christians, isn't God supposed to be in control? All right? Haven't we surrendered our will to his will? Shouldn't we be shooting for God control in our lives? Not self-control. Yet here it is. It's on the list. So we to understand that, we got to look at the next two verses. In Galatians 5, 24. So I actually say, okay. Uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This talks about our responsibility. The act of crucifying our flesh or sinful nature is our responsibility. The act of living by the Spirit's work in our lives is our responsibility. The act of keeping in step with the Spirit, again, that's in our court. You've got to understand love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are not aspects of the human nature. That's the Spirit's nature. Now, the human nature he'd listed in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, right? Though, you know, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and he goes into all that, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, blah, blah, blah. He goes into all of those. 
That's something else entirely. But Paul says, well, since we live by the Spirit, we've got to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, how all of this applies to self-control? Because he's telling us virtually every part of the body, we need to have self-control. But it's actually only enough control of ourselves to allow me to say, I'm going to let Jesus take control. That is the key. That is as much control as I have of myself. And this is key, guys, because so many times we try to live righteous lives by just gutting it out through sheer determination of my own self-will and self-control. Instead of saying, I got just enough self-control to let Jesus control me. And then when I do that, actually, I give it all over to him and he makes the decisions. Now, this goes against sometimes our, our reasoning and expressing self-control to have exp- is, just to, is to give up control. It's kind of like the only way to live is to die. You know, it doesn't make sense sometimes, yet that's what we've got to do. Now, understand, when I say Jesus taking control, okay, it's, it's not that, you know, okay, he makes all my decisions. He forces me to do this or that or the other. He controls me. He just makes all my, that'd be kind of good. It'd be kind of great. I don't have any responsibility. I don't have to make any decisions. Jesus is just doing it, you know, and I, I do my thing. But, you know, I, I do think, no, when it means Jesus is in control, it means he makes the calls. He sets the standards. In that regard, he is in control. But i got to keep in step with that. I, once I make the decision to live by the Spirit and not by the, I mean, yeah, not by the flesh, to live by the Spirit, then the action is set. The action is set because Jesus has already set it. All i got to do is make that one decision. Give up control to him. He's made all the others already. Actually, that's one of the biggest hurdles of it, though, isn't it? It's one of the biggest hurdles of giving control to Jesus. Because we already know what he's going to ask us to do. We already know that if I give him control, I know where he's going to lead me. He's going to lead me to say no to ungodliness. He's going to lead me to say yes to sexual purity and no to that guy or to that girl. He's going to lead me to sobriety. He's going to lead me to serve others. He's going to lead me to love the people I can't stand. He's going to lead me to sacrifice for others. And deep down inside, if we're honest, that ain't a fruit of our spirit. That's kind of where we don't want to go sometimes. If I give up control, I already know that's where Jesus has taken me. I've had disciples tell me as they leave our fellowship, as they leave the church, and they say, you know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be a disciple someday, but I just want to go out and have some fun right now in my life. I'm young. I've had disciples say, you know what? I just need to get drunk. I just want to, I just want to go out and just get drunk and forget about everything. And the issue is not wanting to go party or to go do whatever. The issue is self-control. Because those temptations, that's what they are. They're temptations. They themselves are not the sin. 
That desire is not the problem. It's the lack of control that says that I'm going to do what Jesus wants. And that's why Paul says to Titus, to tell him, be self-controlled. Control the passions and the desires and the temptations that we all have. Control them enough to give it to Jesus. Giving the spirit controls only comes after giving up my control. We can say Jesus take the wheel, but he ain't going to take the wheel until I let go of the wheel. But a lot of times we don't want to let go of the wheel. We just want to sneak a little hand down here about 7 o'clock and hang on. All right. And, and Jesus is trying to do this and we're kind of doing this in the car. We're, our life is just doing that. See, he says, give up control. Just give it to Jesus. But I know where Jesus is going. Well, yeah. That's why Paul says, look, though, tell him, be self-controlled. Right thinking. And that right thinking is not all these individual decisions. The right thinking is, just turn it over to him. All those other decisions he's already made. And then he moves on. He moves on and says in verse 7, Titus, I want you to set them an example in all these different areas. And he starts with doing what is good. All right, it says up there, good works, right? Titus, be an example in good works. The Christian world, the evangelical world is scared to death of the term good works. They are so afraid that it's going to get linked to earning your salvation or something like that, that they just go way out of their way to play down good works. But as we see in all of these verses, Paul had a great deal to say about good works, particularly in this letter, chapter 2, verse 14. He talks about us being created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Um, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he told them, do whatever is good. In chapter 3, verse 8, he was called to be devoted to doing what is good. In chapter 3, verse 14, he tells us our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And like he shared, I threw that other passage up there in Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, where he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, as Christians, we should be doing good works. We should have them in our lives because we're following Jesus and he had them all in his life. And I want to be like Jesus. That's who I'm following. That's what I'm doing. So, young men, when somebody looks at your life, what good Jesus-like works do they really see? We need young men. You ever know the word works? I mean, that implies physical something, and that's already something you know us older guys are fading in. We need the young blood doing a lot of the good works. But I got to confess something to you guys. There are times I struggle when event after event, it's the older people who show up early, set up everything, host and run the event, which basically means they don't get to enjoy it, and then stay late and clean up and set up afterwards. All the while, young people are sitting around fellowship and talking and taking life easy, having a great time, enjoying everything. 
And we got to say, guys, there are a lot of older brothers and sisters who are setting the example of good works. We need some people following that example. We need people sitting around going, you know what? There's a lot of people out there working and doing stuff. Maybe I ought to see if I can help. If I can do that. And I'm not saying it's across the board. There are some young people that totally get involved. But it's true. It was true yesterday with the Kinsers moving in. The over 50 crowd outnumbered the younger crowd two to one. We need the younger men and women to be involved in good works. To extend themselves. And not just good works. He tells Titus, be an example with purity of doctrine. Now, we talked about this last week as well. That purity of doctrine. Having your teaching. He says, T- you, Timothy, your, I mean, Titus, your teaching got to be free of error and corruption. And particularly not allowing false biblical doctrines, but social doctrines. Popularity doctrines and philosophies from creeping in. Now I ask, where really is your doctrine, your teaching? Is it pure? Are your beliefs based on the Word of God? Again, this can't be done without the Bible unless you really know the Word of God. And even when we know it, you find new stuff. Remember I shared one of my D groups where, you know, we we're going to study some of these things out, right? Some of the hot topics. And so we're going to go out and just study around sexual purity. And I had worked up a, a worksheet. I think it was, what was it, Sean? Six, seven pages, eight pages, whatever. Just scriptures. Boom, 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 boom. Scripture, scripture. And I looked at it. Yeah, I gave him one. So I know he's got it at least. <laughs> but I looked at it and I went, wow, I, I, I saw new stuff in there that I'd never seen before because I took the time to go back And even with that many pages, that wasn't exhaustive. I said, what do we really think? What do I really, really believe and why? And I call all of us to have that purity of doctrine because we're going to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine if you don't anchor your soul to the foundation of the word of God. Of getting into the word. He said, Titus, be an example of good works. Be an example in the purity of your doctrine. But then he gets into this next one. Now, it says, uh, you know, seriousness and and things like that, integrity and seriousness. And these words, basically, in even another translation, it's talking dignity. Be an example of being dignified. Now, sometimes we think dignified, we think of some British butler, Right? Jeeves or something. I don't know. But that's not even necessarily what it's talking about. It's talking about in seriousness of life, it's fixed on God. It honors what God honors. And it honors the things that honor God. And he lives a dignified life. Men, are we living in a way that earns the respect of those around us? Those in your class at church or or, or class at school or those in church or those at work or those at home? Do we live dignified? A life that is characterized by that dignity. Does your personal reputation point others to God so that when you share your faith or you invite them to church, they go, you're a Christian? 
Didn't see that one coming. Or did I go, of course you're going to invite me to church. At work, you're the God one. You're the Jesus guy. Not a bad reputation. Good works, purity of doctrine, dignified life. And finally, he says, Titus, I need you to be an example in sound speech. Now, remember, sound means healthy, right? It means proper. And our everyday conversation, he says, needs to be above reproach. He, he says, Titus, when you're talking to these guys, your conversation needs to be healthy and wholesome. Don't slip into unwholesome talk. Don't slip into lewd or provocative conversations. How is our speech? What kind of an example are we? Does my speech draw people closer to respecting me or does it push them away? I was discussing this with some brothers earlier, and we were talking about things in a speech, and we were talking specifically about curse words and such. And it was brought up that it's not really fair that society around me gets to determine what swears and what's not a swear. You know, how's that fair that they all get to determine that? But the more I thought about it, that actually makes sense. Because if I am to be above reproach, Okay, then it goes to reason that those around me get to determine what is and is not above reproach because it's in their eyes that my reputation is being judged. They're judging me by their standard. That's what we all do. And so they get to determine. So if I am to be above reproach, I can't say I, or act disrespectful and thus be called disrespectful and turn around in arrogance and defensiveness and say, well, that's just your problem. I've got to understand that. In the spirit of becoming all things to all men, I need to be an example of following Jesus in how they see, well, that's not what a Christian would do. And even if they are wrong, let's say they're wrong about that or about any issue, perhaps I've won their respect enough that I would be able to actually show them the error of their ways if my speech is respectful. But if I have offended them, if I have disrespected them in my speech with something that is simply controlled like my vocabulary then I may never get the opportunity to show them Jesus. Because they ain't going to listen to anything else I say. Why would I want to give that up? Why would I want to give that up? Remember, the whole point is to make the teachings about God more attractive and to give no one anything bad to say about us. That's the whole point. So we got to be careful with our speech. How we communicate and who we communicate it to, because often that is the very first standard by which our credibility as a Christian is judged. That's the very first thing. And why would I, for the sake of my vocabulary, want to jeopardize my credibility as a disciple of Jesus? Why would I want to do that? Now, you can also go too far the other way, right? Too religious in your speech. Right? Like Ned Flanders. 
and you're out there and you're just going, you know, all this religious speak and religious name, blah, 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 and it's just people just going, oh, man. That can be just as harmful to making the teachings about our God attractive. And I got to be honest with you, sometimes super sounding Christians offend me. And I consider myself a disciple of Jesus. And I go, oh, man. <laughs> Likewise, language filled with hate, anger, accusations, and insults. It's like what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Now, the word unwholesome literally means rotten, corrupt, and not useful. So it's reasonable to assume that it's not just speech that he's talking about here. It's communication because we communicate in ways that Paul and Titus can't even communicate. I can't even do it. We communicate in ways Paul and Titus never even dreamt of. Okay. And so you wonder why, when I think about this, why does Trey, he's always hard. It seems like a month doesn't go by, he's not harping on what we post or what we repost or what we like on different social media platforms. He's always on those type of things. But oftentimes, those things can be a cesspool of unwholesome talk. And not a single swear word is used. But it's just as unwholesome. Now, I'm going to say something controversial here. Freedom of speech is a right given to us by the United States government, but not by God. Our father said our speech should be, and I quote, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. But even if I'm just looking at it from an American citizen point of view, my right to freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from thought or freedom from consideration and respect for others and freedom from responsibility for the consequences of that speech. He said, be an example with your speech, an example of what? Self-control. We are examples to everyone we come into contact with at work, at school, our neighbors, our family. You may say, I don't want to be. I don't need that type of pressure. You've got it. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you want it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you got it. Yeah. Come on. We've got it. People look at us as the image of Christ. Yeah. As ambassadors for God. When they look at us, they're making a decision. Do I want that or not in my life? In our doctrine, in our works, by what we do, in our words, how we communicate. It all matters. It all makes an impact. It all makes a difference. Brothers, older men, younger men, men, we need you. We need you to be godly men. Now, many people don't associate godliness with manliness, okay? In our society, those two words are often in contradiction. The average American guy living a God-faring life is not considered manly. The godly, 
man is often painted as wimpy, spineless, weakling who needs Jesus as a crutch to help him get through life. I'm going to tell you something. Living almost 60 years on this planet has taught me one thing. Living a godly life is one of the hardest things you can do. Right? I mean, just try reading the word of God and actually obeying it. Just try loving people who don't love you, who hate you. Just try standing up for what you know is right when everyone around you is saying it's wrong, when everything on the media is saying it's wrong, when everybody in society is saying you're wrong, and when you do stand up, they call you hateful, they call you simple-minded, phobic, or out of touch. Just try it. Try doing everything you can to help people. Pour yourself out for them only to have them turn on you and brandish you as selfish and evil. Try living a sexually pure life. Even though you're inundated and bombarded with impurity and immorality every day and it's heralded as healthy, good, right. And you're some kind of weirdo for not doing it. Because if you try those things, you're going to discover, discover how hard it is to be a Christian today. A Christian godly man is the most manly thing you can do. And that's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Not to take the easy road of conformity, but to take the difficult and narrow path of following Jesus. To dare to be the man of God, the man he calls us to be, and the man we want to be. We need men who will decide to read the truth of God's word, believe it and obey it and put it in their life and to live that example, that example of a godly man who calls others to follow him. Will you be that man, brothers? Older men, will you be that example? Younger men, will you take this challenge? Because if so, together we can grow into the godly men our church, our families, and our community needs us to be. Amen.